Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Ben and uh, Dan coming at you with another episode of Juanced. How you doing, Dan? Oh, I'm doing great. We've had a pretty quiet week, uh, but I think both Dan and I had a couple of special family occasions that we couldn't participate in because of the uh, because of the situation here. So, uh, Dan, I think... Uh, mazal- damn, that, damn that COVID. Yeah, damn the COVID. Dan, <laughs> a special maz- Mazotov goes out to you for, uh, I think right. it was your nephew's bar mitzvah, my, Noah. It was our first uh, bar mitzvah from that generation in the family. So, a uh, big Mazotov to my nephew, Noah, and my sister, Afrat. And you get a Mazotov. Your sister had her first child. That's right. So that's uh, wonderful. Mazel tov to Lauren. Beautiful. Uh, a baby girl was born a couple of days ago, October Love 2nd. And, um, and yeah, man, I'm, what can I say? I mean, you just kind of feel the the moment of not being there and having to do all these things virtually and through Zoom. And it's it's not ideal. Uh, definitely, I can speak for myself and definitely I, I think you feel the same. If this wasn't the way it was, we would definitely have been there to celebrate these it things is. with our but families. Thanks to the uh, miracles of modern technology, we could at least uh, virtually be there. It's something. What can you do? Um, anyway, so check this out. Uh, Jewans has so far enjoyed tremendous success. We have listeners literally all over the world on every continent except Antarctica. We're working on it. Working on it. We continue to grow in leaps and bounds. Um, that being said, we want to make sure that we can continue to produce top-notch content for you. So as a listener-supported podcast, consider helping us continue to expand by becoming a supporter today. You can make a one-time donation or a small monthly contribution or become a sponsor and advertise your business or organization on our platform. For more information, check out our newly revamped website at www.juance.com. That's www.juance.com. We've got a great show for you today, uh, Dan. That's right. So the U.S. presidential elections are fast approaching, and uh, due to the situation, a lot of people are submitting early votes already. Um, now, no matter who you support, by all means, these are critical elections, important elections in what might be the most polarizing and uh, divisive time that in our lives at least. And more than ever, politics seems to be increasingly uh, an all-or-nothing game. So here at Juwants, where we're all about nuance, that's our mission, that's our platform, is introducing nuance to Jewish life and to to the Israel kind of sphere. We wanted to do our part, uh, help shed light on these issues, uh, on the selections from a Jewish perspective. And so uh, we're going to get into these issues and offer both sides of the election a platform, a chance to express their views in depth, um, and discuss some of the more difficult aspects uh, from their perspectives. And that's why we're super excited. Uh, we're hosting today part one, the first part of a two-part series with two of the biggest Jewish names in American politics. And we are honored. We are excited uh, on what is our first live video episode of Jewanced that's right. to be hosting Haley Seufer, Executive Director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. 
How you doing, Haley? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Next week, I will say, we are going to be equally honored and excited to host Senator Norm Coleman, who is the National Chairman, Board of Directors of the Republican Jewish Coalition. So I'm going to introduce you, Haley, um, as a foreign policy and national security wonk myself. You have a super impressive bio. Uh, loved reading it. So uh, Haley is the first executive director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, and we'll ask you in a minute to tell us exactly what that is. For the past 16 years, Haley has served in a variety of national security roles, supporting Democrats in the Senate, the House, and in the executive branch. Most recently, and this has become super relevant, as national security advisor to the VP candidate, Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, Haley previously served as foreign policy advisor for three members of Congress, Senators Ted Kaufman, Chris Coons, and Representative Robert Wexler from Florida. You also served in the Obama administration as the senior policy advisor to Samantha Power, the ambassador at the UN. That's awesome. In the Bush administration, I like how your website states you are a civil servant to make sure it's not a political appointment. Um, in the State Department Bureau of Political and Military Affairs, who I've had a long experience working with them. And you've got a long history and impressive history also working uh, during the Obama uh, elections to try to gather Jewish votes uh, and has worked as a liaison in your roles uh, both at the UN and on Capitol Hill to the Jewish community on issues related to Israel also. And you're a Midwesterner like we are. So welcome to our show. Welcome to Jewels. It's Thanks. really our pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So tell us, uh, first of all, you're the executive director, the first one of the Jewish Democratic Council of America. For some of our listeners who might not know what that is, please tell us about this organization. What is it you guys do? Great. Well, the Jewish Democratic Council of America is a national organization that was founded three years ago by Jewish and Democratic leaders. Uh, it was founded in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville, as we saw neo-Nazis marching in our streets and a president who equated them with those peacefully protesting them. We... Uh, this organization emerged to serve as the voice of Jewish Democrats at a time when there was no national Jewish organization. And JDCA, as we, we call ourselves, does two things. The first is that we advocate for our values, and we define those as both Jewish and democratic values. And the second is that we support candidates running for federal office. So in this election, Senate, House, and obviously we support Joe Biden. Uh, but these are not all Democrats running. We support those Democrats who share our values. And we are aiming to elect those who share our values in this election. And we did the same thing in the midterm elections and helped to flip the house from red to blue. Fantastic. And how uh, did you end up in this uh, position? How did you end up in this uh, leadership position? Well, uh, I actually envisioned a career in government uh, and I never thought I would actually leave government. And after uh after Hillary lost, uh, and I don't think I was alone in having all sorts of uh, plans in the Clinton administration that never happened, um, I really didn't want Donald Trump to be the reason I left government. I loved working in government. And um, so I returned to the Senate to work for Kamala Harris. In her first few weeks, I started in that office in January of 2017. And what I quickly realized is that the Senate I had left in 2014 was very different than the Senate I returned to. Um, 
I, I left a Democratic controlled uh, Senate in the Obama administration and returned to a Mitch McConnell controlled Senate. And despite working for a phenomenal senator who on each vote was was you know definitely aligned with where I was on and uh, we were doing everything we could and she she as you'll see tonight in the debate has uh, she speaks truth to power she's principled uh, and values driven um, in the end every day started to kind of feel like the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh where votes are being lost by very narrow margins votes that are extremely consequential. And what I what I decided is that I wanted to help change the composition of Congress to ensure that was no longer the case, starting with the House. And that's what we set out to do in 2018. And as I said, we, we were successful in helping to flip the House. And that's what we are aiming to do with the Senate and the White House in this election. And uh, it's, it's, it was extremely gratifying to see that kind of change being brought out, uh, brought about in part due to, uh, the Jewish electorate. And we're going to do it again in just 27 days. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah, you obviously have that connection to, uh, Harris. And, uh, like you said, she's going to be debating. It's, it's tonight, right? It's tonight. It is tonight. tonight. So this episode, it's gonna, tonight. This episode is going to air after the debates. Uh, All right. So we'll see what happens. But, um, it seems this year, uh, maybe because the two presidential candidates are older than uh, we've ever had, that the vice president you noticed, uh, <laughs> especially especially in the uh, the case of uh, Joe Biden, that um, Harris um, as as a potential VP could be more consequential than in past years. Uh, and since you worked closely with her for so long, tell us a little bit about her, maybe uh, from a personal perspective, what it's like. What what could we expect from a VP Harris, and then specifically on on what could we expect from her in the Jewish community in America, and and for those of us here in Israel? Well, first of all, I I hope I hope Vice President Pence prepared uh, for tonight uh, because I think I think the country is in for a real treat with this debate. Uh, I I sat behind her, uh, staffing her at hearings, and uh, was always proud to be sitting behind her and never envied those on the other side of the dais. Uh, she, she is um, a prosecutor by training. Uh, she was the district attorney in San Francisco and then the attorney general of California. And she is a masterful debater. Uh, so, um, you know, I know a lot has been said about this debate with regard to the plexiglass and they're going to be sitting and the White House has all these requirements. All of that is, is somewhat background noise. Uh, let's see, let's see when they get into the content, uh, because Senator Harris is someone who she knows the issues inside and out. Uh, she is a great debater and, um, I, I, I think she's, it's going to be very clear that she's exactly the kind of leader that we need in the White House after tonight. Uh, working for her was uh, a great experience. She's, um, you know, I mentioned my experience having worked for two other senators mm -hmm. in a Democratic controlled Senate during the Obama administration. Senator Harris arrived in Washington uh, the moment President Trump was inaugurated. Um, and you know, those were a hard few, few, few months for this country to, to adjust and certainly for progressives, uh, to adjust to, if you remember those first few months, things like the Muslim ban right. and, um, and, and 
frankly, we saw the rise of hate crimes targeting our community, the Jewish community and others. And, you know, Senator Harris has never wavered in terms of her values, which are very much aligned with the Jewish community. I mean, you saw you saw Jewish leaders take to the streets to protest what was racial discrimination in the form of the Muslim ban. And Senator Harris was one of the most outspoken leaders in the Senate against that as well. Um, as hate crime started to rise, uh, she led a resolution and actually passed a resolution her first few months in the Senate with Senator Rubio. Uh, so she demonstrating that she could get things done in a bipartisan way to condemn anti-Semitism. She spoke uh, at APAC in her first few months in the Senate, talking about her experience growing up uh, in Oakland, uh, surrounded and very much a part of the Jewish community. She um, obviously has has since uh, you know become a part of the Jewish community by marrying someone who's Jewish, uh, but also was no stranger to the community even before that. Uh, you know, has very close ties to the community, especially in Northern California, and. Um, you know, and, and also to Israel. Um, I traveled with her and her husband to Israel in 2017. Um, uh, and it wasn't her first time. It was actually Doug's first time going to Israel really? and saw her deep understanding of these issues and her interest in looking just beyond, frankly, uh, what it would be a typical kind of Senate trip to Israel and really understanding the breadth and depth of the relationship. We traveled to Beersheba. Uh, to look at the cyber uh, relationship and look at uh, Israel's um, innovation. Uh, and frankly, uh, in many ways, is, is quite ahead of where we are. And we, we traveled to uh, look at uh, a desalination plant to better understand how Israel has figured out how to recycle their water so much better than we have, which is obviously a big issue for California. Um, and, you know, of course, she did all the, the meetings that one would do in Jerusalem. But you know, my point of mentioning this is that she she really appreciates and values that relationship beyond uh, just uh, the government to government relationship and understands the people to people relationship also. And and that is why she's been such a, a champion in in the Senate and also pushed back against these Republican efforts to politicize the relationship with Israel. She's consistently advocated for continued bipartisanship when it comes to Israel. And we've never seen uh, such a um, an effort by uh, the president and by Republicans, frankly, to politicize it as we have in the past three years. So, uh, yeah. That's interesting. Um, you bring that up. You know, we, and we looked at, we had a look at, at your organization's platform and we looked at, um, and we really went through it on every issue. And as well as the DNC platform. As well as the DNC okay. platform. And it seems, um, you know, it, it seems like from definitely the majority of American Jews, and I'd, I'd say even probably a lot of Israeli Jews could read that as we did and say, we're very comfortable with this. Like this is, you know, hits on every single issue or 90% of the issues that we would want it to hit. And yet there's there's this uh, prevailing view, um, it, it seems, an increasing number of American Jews. And over here in Israel, with a lot of Israeli Jews who obviously look at American politics through a lens because, you know, they're sitting here and they're only looking at Israeli issues as, as they play out in foreign policy issues. And, and they're increasingly uncomfortable. Um, so how – I don't know if we could talk about this um, kind of this gap between you're saying all the right things – your organization definitely saying all the right things. Even the DNC is saying all the right things. Uh, the majority of, of Democratic members of Congress are voting pro-Israel consistently. Um, and yet, why are people, 
you know, increasingly uncomfortable with what's happening, uh, kind of, let's say, on the progressive edge of the Democratic Party? Well, I would start somewhat by rejecting the premise of the question, um, because, you know, there's uh, there's what we call uh, research and research. Right. And the research consistently, the polling shows that Jews are American Jews. Right. I mean, yeah. we're focused on here in our country. American <laughs> yeah. Jews are overwhelmingly supporting Democrats. Seventy nine percent of Jewish voters supported Democrats in the 2018 midterms. And we expect that to continue. We expect Joe Biden's numbers to be well in the 70s in this election. And that's you know, that is because Jews are overwhelmingly Democrats um, and they're comfortable being Democrats. And we we saw a poll earlier this month that showed that Jew, Jewish voters support Joe Biden and trust Joe Biden more than Donald Trump on every issue including Israel. And so, you know, I don't really think that there is the degree of concern that you're talking about. Now, we know Jews, Jewish voters, again, based on polling, are pro-Israel. They consider themselves to be pro-Israel. And interestingly, 87% of the respondents who identified as Democrats said that. And amazingly, 87% of Republicans who responded said they consider themselves to be pro-Israel. Israel's very important to Jewish voters. And it's one of many reasons that they're overwhelmingly supporting Joe Biden. But the top issues driving the Jewish vote are actually domestic policy issues. They are issues such as the rise of white supremacy, which Donald Trump has numerous times, including just uh, two weeks ago, refused to condemn. They are issues like, um, you know, healthcare and the recklessness by which Donald Trump has handled this pandemic, which has now led to the deaths of over 210,000 Americans. Um, so we're voting on domestic policy issues. And again, this is why we're voting for Joe Biden. You mentioned the Democratic platform, which you're, you're absolutely right. It affirms not only support of the U.S.-Israel relationship, but support of the 10-year, $38 billion memorandum of understanding that was negotiated and finalized by President Obama and Vice President Biden. Uh, it supports that aid with no conditioning, no cutting. Uh, that is the view of Joe Biden. That is the view of our organization. And frankly, that is the view of the Democratic Party per this platform. Um, it, it supports a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It opposes the BDS movement while supporting First Amendment rights. I mean, it is unwavering in its support of Israel. And frankly, that platform, of course, Israel's an important part of it, but it's a 91-page platform. It includes other issues as well. Contrast that with what the Republican Party adopted at their convention, which was a one-page press release that basically said, we'll rubber stamp whatever Donald Trump wants to do. And, you know, that, what do they stand for other than Donald Trump? Um, You know, it leaves a lot. We'll let the next guest next week uh, talk about that. But um, you mentioned some interesting points and, and and we pointed out and said, we looked at it and and your platform for sure, you know, hits on all of these definitely pro-Israel notes and and it pushes for that, you know, uh, and we'll talk about the two state solution in a second because, that brings up, I think, a new area that none of us have ever been in. But you said something that I've noticed in recent years, and we've talked about this a lot, um, including on this show. Jewish voters, a lot of the ones who are voting Democrat, for them, you said the Israel is not the top issue. And it's not. And maybe it shouldn't be. 
uh, maybe it should be, you see different kinds of views within the Jewish community on that. What, you know, as long as Israel is not a top issue, then I think the, who Jews vote for isn't going to be an issue. But what can you envision a situation in which you have a candidate? Um, and we know Joe Biden. He's been around for years. He's been a, and he's been a good friend of Israel. And I, I worked. Um, you know, my my previous life was in the military, doing kind of uh, national security and foreign policy things. And I worked with the Obama administration, and and they were certainly very supportive and, and we cooperated very well. So I pushed back. Uh, as a policy person, I'm not a political person. I'm a policy person, and I've pushed back. And, and Joe Biden has proved himself as a friend throughout his entire career. Um, but what happens when you get a candidate who's more from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who does want to distance from Israel? You heard it from Sanders. You heard it a little bit from Warren. Um, you could hear it from you know people who could rise to prominence in American politics. Can you imagine a situation where an organization like yours has a really hard time doing what it's doing and continuing to push for this when, you know, one part of your party is pulling that way and the Republicans are trying to make this a partisan issue? Does that put you in like a tough spot? Well, we're, we're, we're quite principled in that, uh, you know, before we endorse a candidate and we've endorsed over 121 in this election, uh, we do look at where they stand on all the issues. And of course, Israel is an important one. And we ask questions, including about their supportive aid to Israel, uh, which is where we saw some differences in this past primary. And we don't support cutting or conditioning aid. We support the MOU. And for those candidates uh, who don't share that view, we, we haven't endorsed them. Um, and that was not an issue uh, yeah. when it came to the, this general election. We have a, a candidate who has a longer and stronger record on Israel than anyone we've ever seen before. He's, right. Joe Biden's been working on Israel issues you know, since 1972. Sure. Um, and and I, I would definitely encourage you when when you do to speak with the other side to ask about you know the white supremacist wing of the Republican Party uh, because we now have we've had this cycle twenty candidates associated with QAnon with white supremacists. Uh, and those who have espoused bigotry, hatred, anti-Semitism online, all running as Republicans. And there's a reason. That's because under Donald Trump, he has given a home to this kind of bigotry in his party. They're not running as Democrats. They don't have a place in our party. So, you know, it is it is not something that, frankly, perhaps you don't see it in Israel as much of an issue as we American Jews see it. But there's a reason that we have now increased security at our synagogues and our our Jewish schools and our Jewish community centers to the degree that you have it in Israel, that we have to go through metal detectors. That has nothing to do with members of Congress. That's because white supremacists inspired by President Trump have now attacked two of our synagogues in this unprecedented attacks yeah. in the past three years. And that's because anti-Semitism has been higher in the last year than we've ever seen before in our history. Uh, and, you know, it, it's important that we look at the source of that. It's important that we consider Donald Trump's refusal to condemn white supremacy. And I know earlier I said two weeks ago, and now I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that's because this past week has felt so long. It was just last week uh, that he, he refused to condemn white supremacy. So and um, but we've. Yeah. God, we, yeah. we, there's been anti-Semitic attacks, you know, in the past. Um, it's not something new. What, what might be new is that two were successful, right? If we wanted to, to play. no, I actually I I reject that. Uh, okay. 
anti-Semitism, of course, did not uh, start with Donald Trump's ascent right. uh, to the presidency. But we're talking about an unprecedented rise starting in 2017. And, and this is according to the ADL. The largest number of anti-Semitic incidents on record is 2019. And that's just because we're not done with 2020 yet. Let's see how this year looks when they can compare the statistics. According to the FBI. Yeah, 2020 is proven to be. Yeah. and But last year, according to ADL, was the largest number of anti-Semitic incidents. Uh, you know, according to ADL as well, the white nationalist propaganda online increased by four, fourfold exponentially, including on college campuses and elsewhere. So it is not just that we've, oh, we've had anti-Semitism before and all of a sudden, you know, there's a focus on it. That's just patently false. What we've had has been an exponential rise in hate groups, including the Proud Boys and affiliated groups that Donald Trump has incited. And and make no mistake, from the debate stage, what he said, you know, stand by and stand back and stand by. Yeah, yeah, it was shocking. Well, whatever he said, it doesn't matter what he said in the same way that I don't know what's in his heart. But here's how anti-Semites see it. Here's how white nationalists see it. They see an ally. They saw that as a call to arms. They saw it as a call to action. And that's why the situation we're in is different than ever before. Because what the president of the United States says and does matters. And it's not just what he said from that debate stage, which was was a, a dog whistle, a rallying call to white nationalists, because that's how they saw it. And we know that based on the response online. But what also matters is you know, what he, who he surrounds himself with. He, he is, he is someone in the White House now, Sebastian Gorka, who has proudly worn Nazi party medals. He has the president's own ads in this cycle have been removed by Facebook for including hate symbols. You know, so it, no, it is not just a coincidence that we've had these unprecedented attacks on our synagogues and our communities. It is directly correlated to the hatred that's been emboldened by this president. Yeah, and and we're definitely going to bring that up next week with uh, Senator Coleman because uh, it'll make the show interesting. Um, no, it's an important. Well, issue. can it's can I say one thing about Senator yeah. Coleman, and and you can actually raise this with him? Um, Senator Coleman in March of 2016 wrote a phenomenal piece in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He said he would never support Donald Trump because he's a bigot, a fraud, a misogynist, and a bully. That was all in the headline. You could look it up. I think it was March. I don't know the exact date, but 2016. We'll, we'll pull it. We'll definitely pull it up. So okay. I, I, I would like to know from Senator Coleman that how is it that after he rightfully, I totally agree with him called Donald Trump a bigot, a misogynist, a fraud, and a bully, that he could now be running an organization that is spending $10 million to reelect him. Right. And we'll bring that up. We'll definitely bring that up. I'll also add, I mean, it it seems like when we're weighing everything that you just said on one side, where we're talking about the rise of anti-Semitism on a national level by so many different, you know, organizations that are affiliated with, with far right positions, it seems like the effect or the, the presence of far left uh, anti-Semitism, especially at this juncture, may not be at, at the forefront of, of where people's thoughts are. But, you know, I have to mention it. It's just, it's just 
um, you know, I'm from I'm from Minneapolis originally. My my parents live in Minneapolis. My sister lives in Minneapolis, and they live in Elon Omar's district. So when that happened, and when you know, we I had very high hopes for her when she was when she was elected because here you have a progressive candidate who is who is coming from her community. It's a very successful story. It kind of mirrored what one could say was the Jewish experience of of you know previous generations. And I really wanted it to be something that I could stand behind and be proud of. And sure enough, you know, it's like what everybody's stereotyped worst version of things that she could say happened, you know, could, could happen, happened. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it wasn't, you know, how could she say such a thing? It was, how are all of my mom's neighbors okay with that? You know, and, and maybe they're not okay with it, but she was reelected. So it's like, this does exist on the other side where I would say if I was living in America, even, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a Republican or a Democrat or like somebody who's going to vote for Kanye West. Like it doesn't make a difference to me. Like if, if, if there's a candidate who's going to make openly anti-Semitic comments, I can't support that candidate anymore. And it doesn't matter if there's like, yeah, but for the greater good, you have to support the candidate. It's just, there's a red line for me and it's bothersome to me. And it was scary for me to see that so many people who were in my community were just like, okay, that's fine. Um, and I guess the question here, if there's a question, is when you as the executive director of the JDCA or, or, or any organization is faced with people on your side, uh, how do you confront that? Is, is it just a condemnation or is there an actual process that you go through to try to rectify or, or, or make sure that that person isn't elected or what, what, what goes on? Yeah, well, it's, it's not it's not as... Uh... It's not as difficult as, you know, as your question suggests. I mean, when Ilhan Omar was running in, uh, in 2018 for the seat that she ultimately won, uh, we looked at her past statements. She had previously made references to the world being hypnotized by Israel. And, uh, we, we made statements about both her views and those of Rashida Tlaib, which she had made different statements with regard to aid to Israel. And she didn't, she still doesn't support a two state solution. So we made it publicly clear in August of 2018 where, where we stood when it came to her views and the fact that we didn't support them. We didn't share her views. Uh, when she was elected, uh, you know, it was clear clear that, you know, whether it was your neighbors or others, you know, her constituents voted her in. Um, and then subsequently, uh, when she made, when she tweeted, it's all about the Benjamins in February of 2019, we condemned it without hesitation immediately. Uh, she subsequently made statements we disagreed with. We condemned those as well. The uh, Democrats in the House led a resolution that was condemning what she had said, that which she voted for, interestingly. And uh, and many Demo uh, many Republicans actually voted against, um, just demonstrating how polarized this moment is. And yeah, we it's not hard. Uh, we condemn statements and positions uh, with which we disagree. But something you to report. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry to jump in here. You as an organization definitely came out uh, and and came out against it. And and it's good you're saying this and. And for our listeners to to understand that, um, and you're not the DNC, you're you are not the Democratic Party, um, you are in the mix of things, but you're not the Democratic Party. A lot of people within the Jewish community and a lot of Americans who can vote who live here feel, uh, and again, we have the feeling and we have the numbers, right? They're two different things, but they're I think they're equally important, especially in these times. Um, they feel that the Democratic Party, as a party, not JDCA has not done enough to come out really strongly against 
the anti-Semitism that's coming from the far left, where it obviously pounces on the anti-Semitism that comes from the far right. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, if that's something that you, in your capacity, can comment on. Obviously, your organization's doing the best it can, but can you maybe talk about it from a broader Democratic Party perspective? Sure. Um, let's talk about the numbers, right? Ilhan Omar, and, and let's include Rashida Tlaib, um, mm. because we don't agree with either of them when it comes to Israel or the issue of BDS. Um, they were two of 63 Democrats who were elected in 2018. Uh, it's actually a phenomenal freshman class, uh, the most diverse freshman class we've ever seen, the large number of women. There are many things about that as freshman class that's historic, but importantly, it also includes stalwart supporters of the U.S.-Israel relationship, people like Alyssa Slotkin from Michigan, uh, who worked on these issues, you may know, in the Obama administration uh, and many administrations. Um, it includes uh, phenomenal supporters of Israel, and the overwhelming majority of them actually you know, represent what I would consider to be the DNC, the Democratic Party's view on Israel, which are represented by now the leader of our party, hopefully our future president, Joe Biden. And to those who are focused more on these freshmen, two freshmen members of Congress, and the statements that they made last year, you know, I would, I would encourage them to rewatch the presidential debate. Because you're right, they're not the leaders of our party. But on the other side, we have not only the leader of the party, the leader of the United States, the president in the highest office of the land, who is repeatedly inciting not just white supremacists, but also those who want to erode the fundamental strength of our democracy. And he also said at the debate that there could be an issue with the ballots. He is attempting to undermine our democracy. He is threatening our security in two ways. You know, it's not just our democracy. He's also threatening our security. I can't leave my house without a mask. I'm, I'm in my house right now. I can't, I haven't been in my office since March. He has so mishandled this pandemic. In addition to that, we have to deal with the rise of anti-Semitism. So, yes, we don't agree with some, a handful of uh, freshman members of Congress, too, when it comes to Israel. Do, do you see that as a, a sign of things to come, as many here see it, or a blip on the, on the screen? We take it seriously. What I would encourage everyone else to do who is overly, what I would say, consumed by these two freshman members of Congress is to look at the words coming out of the mouth of the president of the United States. Well, we'll get to because that, yeah. that is deeply concerning. No, but like, let's not even equate it. I, I think that this is a false equivalence. Oh, there's anti-Semitism on the left and anti-Semitism on the right. I reject that equivalence. There is the president of the United States who is condoning amplifying, repeating, uh, praising white nationalists. And it's had a direct impact on our security. And then, you know, yes, we've spent, I already consider it to be too much time talking about two freshman members of Congress whom we've, we've condemned from before they were elected. We would never endorse them. So it's done. And, 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 you know, if they hadn't been in your, she hasn't been reelected yet, but yes, she won her primary. 
Let's see what happens. But the Republican Party would like you to believe that they represent the Democratic Party. They don't. The Democratic Party is represented by that 91-page document that we discussed. That's our platform. The Democratic Party is represented by our leadership, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, Chuck Schumer, and many of those freshman members that I talked about who are strongly pro-Israel. And most importantly, perhaps in this moment, because we have 27 days until the most important election of our lifetime, the Democratic Party is represented by Joe Biden. And you can't question where he is on Israel because he's had decades to prove and he's never wavered. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you talked about all of the support, uh, the dog whistling, everything coming out of the president for white nationalists, um, even remarks that we could look at and be like, oh, those are, that, that's anti-Semitic. And yet you see a lot of people saying, okay, he's got Jewish family. He's and people here and, and people in the, um, on the Republican side, will say he's obviously clearly by far the most pro-Israel president in the history of the United States and in the history of Israel. Everything he's done for, he moved the embassy. You're talking about like policy. Policies, policies. He's gotten out of the Iran deal. Um, and, and everyone's now looking at the UAE agreement and, and saying, okay, there's the anti-Semitism and, and we're not going to, um, you know, let our, our guest next week uh, get away from, from that line of questioning because it's certainly a big one. And yet... He seems to be the most pro-Israel president ever as far as both his rhetoric and his policy. And that's something that I think is is confusing for a lot of Jewish voters in the middle. Um, and I don't know how many of those voters in the middle. It's confusing for the couple hundred to thousand of Jewish voters who live here who, who don't see all the domestic issues. And they say, look at everything he's done for Israel. And – He's maybe too cozy, you know, I'm putting it lightly, obviously, with uh, with anti-Semites or with white nationalists, um, for sure. What would you say to those kind of voters? What would you say to those people who are teetering, who are trying to bounce? Because we're not talking to the always Trumpers, and we're clearly not talking here to the never Trumpers. We're talking to those people in the middle who who say, look at his record on Israel, but look at, you know, how he's – been very vague or even dog whistled to to anti-Semitic and, and right-wing white supremacist organizations? Well, first I would say he hasn't been vague at all. He's he's actually been really, really clear. He, re, he refused, despite prodding, including by his opponent, by Joe Biden, to please condemn white supremacy. He refused. So he hasn't been vague. He was given ample opportunity and he has chosen to align himself with white nationalists who have supported him and he has aligned with, frankly, since uh, he started running for president in 2015. Um, and the Republican Jewish coalition uh, has refused to condemn that. Um, I also don't think that Donald Trump has been the greatest friend to Israel. Um, and so I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But what I would say to undecided voters, uh, of which there are very few, frankly, uh, we've never seen uh, voters, especially Jewish voters, yeah, so locked in. Really? Um, undecided, not undecided, but people who aren't clearly Democrats or Republicans, people who look at. Sure. I mean, we know actually a lot of Jews are identify as independents, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, the, the Jewish vote is pretty much locked in this election. There's not a lot of persuasion to be done. But what I would say is if, if Israel's your issue, 
but you also care about every other issue, uh, including who a president would nominate to the Supreme Court who's going to make decisions that will impact, you know, your reproductive rights or your, uh, you know, your rights when it comes to freedom of, of speech. And, and so these fundamental issues that are, you know, now front and center for America as we, as we consider, uh, replacing, um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court. Um, you know, if you care about those issues as well, Joe Biden is a stalwart supporter of Israel and he's he's aligned with the Jewish community on every other issue that is that we care about. Uh, you know, welcoming the stranger and 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 just frankly Pikuach Nefesh, you know, the sanctity of human life. I mean, Donald Trump has demonstrated such a disregard for human life, perhaps even his own, since he's gotten sick, that it's this is antithetical to who we are as Jews. We've just had 79 11s here in the United States. 70. We've lost 210,000 people. And, 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 you know, it's just kind of like a passing number. I have to say it's been deeply for me. And I don't know how you feel, Dan. It's been deeply disturbing uh, watching COVID unfold in the United States from, from abroad and seeing how quickly it turned into a political issue instead of something where people could unite behind yeah. something. It just seemed like it, it's so, I mean, look, I'm not going to say for a second that we in Israel have our, you know, things covered with COVID because we're down, we, you know, it's, it's outright scary here at the moment. It's a little bit out of control, but it's not a political issue. I mean, there's no like BB supporters aren't walking around saying that COVID doesn't exist and like I'm not wearing a mask. Like everyone's masked. Like there's a law you have to wear. Right. Or, or, uh, well, yeah, you, so, know, you know, you know why you know why you're wearing a mask? Because you, you actually have leadership that wears a mask, right? Netanyahu wears a mask when he goes out. Yeah. Uh right. And and you we actually had, are you shut idea. down. You shut down for the holidays. Things got out of control. You shut down for 10 days. Okay, we have a leader who refused to wear a mask for eight months. Until he contracted the virus himself, and then even in that moment, he was willing to risk. He was willing to risk. But let's talk about that that ride around Walter Reed, because he he endangered the lives of those whose sole job it is is to protect his life. If you care about other human beings, you don't do that. You don't take off your mask. How about the people that are working with him in the White House right now? I mean, the guy got up on it was like he walked up the stairs and like this this kind of like Mussolini moment of like, let me rip off my mask and like. Salute. But let's let's look at it from the Jewish perspective, from the Jewish perspective. We save one life is to save to save them all. Right. We, we believe in the sanctity of human life. And from the beginning, the president has demonstrated that he does not. He has tried to change the subject. He's refused to lead by example. He refused to wear a mask. He has held multiple super spreader events. He's endangered many lives. He's refused to shut down the country. So the reason that you now are doing better than we are, even though I know things have been hard in Israel, is because we don't have leadership. So for a Jewish voter that you know, is trying to decide, is undecided. I would ask what issues they care about when it comes to their lives and their families. Because if it's access to affordable health care, if it's access to good education, if it is uh, public education, especially, if it is, um, you know, defending against the scourge of gun violence that we have had in this country that has not affected you in Israel, but we have had an epidemic of gun violence, 
you know, if it is, um, again, issues like reproductive rights and, uh, and frankly, just decency, empathy from our leaders, then I don't know how anyone could vote for Donald Trump. Joe Biden is the leader that we need. Now, I know you mentioned Israel, and, and I mentioned that I don't think Donald Trump is a great leader when it comes to Israel, and yeah, I will explain that. And we're going we're gonna to steal a few more minutes of your time. If that's yeah, okay. yeah. No, it's okay. I, I, will, I, will, I will be late to my next thing to, to finish uh, you know, our thoughts here. Um, you know, but, I, but because we're, we're taking a little more time, I think it's important, whomever is watching this, that they consider that the Jewish vote, I mean, we're not monolithic. Right. And we're not one issue voters. So every time Donald Trump says, like, your country, and he's referring to us American Jews as Israelis, like, clearly he doesn't understand us at all. And uh, you could look at it that way, or you could say that he's reaffirming uh, dual loyalty tropes. Um you know, he thinks we're, we're monolithic and he thinks that we're one issue voters and that we're only voting on Israel and that we all share David Friedman and Jared Kushner's views when it comes to Israel. He's yeah. wrong about all of it. No, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. We are voting on issues that impact our lives. We care about Israel, but we also care about our health. We care about our security. We care about our safety. We care about our leaders demonstrating decency and we care about Israel. And for all those reasons and more, we're voting for Joe Biden. Now, you raise the issue of, is Donald Trump, well, he's such a great leader and, and when it comes to Israel and he has Jewish grandchildren. Listen, he's a misogynist, as, as Norm Coleman said, and he's been married three times, right? Yes, he has Jewish grandchildren. That's, that's nice. Uh, the fact of the matter is, has endangered our community by emboldening white nationalism more than any other leader we've ever seen in American political history. That's why it makes it so hard as someone sitting over here and watching the spectacle unfold to be like, okay. So, so to them, I would say it's not so hard because he's just, he's, he's been a disaster. And when it comes to Israel, yeah, he's been long on symbolism. He's been short on substance. And let me explain. Yes, he, he moved the embassy, right? And, and, and we as an organization, we recognize Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Did, did you he, guys support that move when he did it? We, we came out saying, yes, Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. We, it was unfortunate the way he did it because as with everything else, it was not particularly strategic and it was partisan. He, he, the event that was held at the, oh, yeah. at, you know, he didn't invite Democrats. Democrats wanted to attend that event. Democrats wanted that moment to be bipartisan. And as with everything else this White House did, it was very partisan. But also, you know, he's done things like withdraw from northern Syria. When, you know, if you recall, when he withdrew the troops from northern Syria in December of 2019, he lost his secretary of defense because of it. Mattis resigned. After his call with Erdogan, he just, you know, it's like the last thing someone says to him, oh, yeah, I'm just going to withdraw the troops. You know, not only did that create a vacuum for Iran to continue to exploit on Israel's northern border between Tehran and the Mediterranean, but it also left the Israeli government, and we know this, thinking, I, oh, maybe I, we're next. Maybe we're next. Because if Donald Trump is going to flippantly make foreign policy in such a, you know, non-deliberative way, and let's not forget that Mattis left because of that. 
mm-hmm. then who knows what his policy will be with regard to Israel? And and yes, he did he did bring together the the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and the Israelis, and that was important. And diplomatic openings are good, but let's not forget the context of this larger agreement, because he's also, as with everything with Donald Trump, it's transactional. He's offering the same advanced fighter jets that you guys have, that the Israelis have, the F-35s, to the Emiratis, which might endanger your qualitative military edge. Believe me, Democrats I'm have raised this okay as an uh, I'm, I'm okay. actually F-35 deal. We'll, we'll talk about that in another episode, but I'm actually not as opposed to the F-35 this year. I, I, I know we don't have, we only have a few minutes and I want to bring up to you. Well, but can I, can I finalize the, my thoughts on this point? Because the sure. biggest way that I think that he has hurt the U.S.-Israel relationship, well, there are two. One is that he's politicized it. And we saw this even uh, with Secretary Pompeo's speech at the Republican convention, which he used Israel and uh, Jerusalem as a backdrop for, right. as if it was like a set, uh, right. you know, yeah, it was a, pro- it was used as a prop. And the second is that he has weakened the United States. There's a reason that we couldn't even, you know, they tried to snap back sanctions at the UN with regard to Iran. They tried to, um, they tried to reimpose the Iran arms embargo at the UN and failed miserably. I mean, I worked for as a, as the ambassador at the UN for two and a half years. I've never seen a vote that's lost so miserably at the Security Council as that vote because we've lost our support, our allies, our partnership. And when the U.S. is weak and isolated, it's not good for Israel. And in this moment, after seeing Donald Trump you know, walk away from the Iran nuclear deal, it is now Iran that is in a stronger position. It is Iran moving back towards its nuclear development and it is us that is isolated. So and I'll, that I'll, is not good for Israel. I'll, 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 I think we agree with the larger point you're making here and it's not a political issue, uh, Republican, Democrat, um, and I think the lack of overall statesmanship State, what's the word I'm looking for? Statesmanship, yeah. The overall. You might have made up a word, but it makes sense. No, the the grand strategy. There's no grand strategy at play here. And and again, it's not a right left issue. There's just no grand strategy at play of how how to bring it together. And I've said this multiple times, and I've written on it. Um, and and so I agree with that point. And yet, and yet, and yet, um, and and this takes me to kind of an issue that I think we could easily talk about for three hours, and we're going to talk about it for just a couple minutes until you have to go to your next appointment. Um. Israel, from that perspective and from all of these moves that were highly criticized as foolish by by Democrats and by a lot of the Jewish community who is by and large Democrat, have somehow come out in Israel's favor in the region. Israel has come out stronger, less isolated, and it's pushed it maybe in a you know, not intentional way into this agreement with the UAE and with Bahrain and soon probably more countries as a form of alliance to come together in the region. I want to bring up uh, as kind of um, this last issue of the two-state solution. So something that I'm very adamant about in our very first episode we talked about, it was right before the what we thought was going to be the annexation or whatever that was going to be. Okay, this was in late June. That's that's when we uh, we launched the show. And that was our very first episode. And we sat with a settler activist. And, and we were not convinced from a strategic perspective that it was a good idea for Israel. Okay, and we said, convince us. Let's hear your side of the story. I think not enough people sit with settlers, sit with right-wing Israelis, and say, talk to us and convince us. Um, 
something that has come out of the American and kind of international Western foreign policy thinking, the consensus that has been shaped ever since the Clinton administration, through the Bush administration, and definitely into Obama, and and we can expect it, I think, with with Biden, is that the two-state solution, as envisioned during the Clinton parameters, is the two-state solution, and it's the only viable solution. And people here in Israel, a growing number of people here in Israel, and apparently in the region, and, and I was very surprised by this when the UAE agreed and signed on in Bahrain, are starting to say, Israelis are starting to say to the world, that the Clinton parameter, two-state solution, it's not going to happen. The Trump two-state solution parameters, even though the Palestinians won't go near it, we're willing to talk about that. And now the rest of the Arab world is starting to come on board as well. Could it be that we're all wrong? I mean, you're a foreign policy person. You're also a Democrat. Could it be that we've kind of been all wrong and we've just been misreading the map this whole time and coddling the Palestinians and they've been kind of playing everyone along? Um, could it be that we might end up and that the Palestinians won't get a state of their own or they'll get something that looks more like it did in the Trump plan, the map that he put out? Because um, yeah, that's think- how that Israelis look and, and, and they keep seeing that two-state solution that the, that the Democratic side keeps talking about. And say we can't get behind that, or, or and increasingly, and I'm saying Israelis here are increasingly looking at that and saying that that's not pro-Israel. We can't we can't get behind that. That's that doesn't make us safe. So I think it's possible that two things can be true at the same time. So one is that it is good for Israel to be normalized to normalize relations with Gulf states and its neighbors, and you know what what happened with Bahrain and the UAE is a good thing, and I hope it's a lasting thing. Uh, because, you know, frankly, I think for Donald Trump in the same way that in your past three elections, he tried to do things for Netanyahu to time it right before the election, whether it was recognition of sovereignty of the Golan or whatever it was, there's no question that the fact that this happened less than 50 days before our election was intentional on their part. This was a political calculation. So, you know, I hope that this is a lasting uh, sign of progress for Israel with regard to openings with Gulf states. But it is also true that there are, you know, Palestinians with whom uh, millions, right, about two million, that maybe more, uh, that that Israel will, will have to find a way to coexist with. And I don't think it is possible that there is any solution other than a two-state solution with Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in security and peace, that is going to be the lasting solution. Now, there have been a lot of, you know, ways to, without recognition of of a Palestinian state, to improve that relationship. Uh, In the Obama administration, you know, there was um, an unprecedented security relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians uh, that this administration, frankly, cut off assistance to. And if you believe the reports, uh, which I do, uh, when Netanyahu himself asked Donald Trump to continue uh, that assistance to the Palestinians, we're talking about just $12 million in security aid. He basically said, you want it, fund it yourself. Um, you know, that was important because there's just a certain reality, and that is, you know, and, and I assume you, you both have been in the West Bank, and I, I've actually been to Gaza. They're not going anywhere. And, yeah. and, 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 and there must be a way to ensure security and coexistence and ultimately peace. And, you know, I think it's not either or. 
it's in Israel's interest to find a way to ensure those things and to have a peace and a diplomatic relationship with those in the region. So I, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of wishful thinking in this administration. Um, and, you know, it got a little tough for Jared to figure out how to create peace with the Palestinians. So he kind of moved on. Um, and, you know, that's because they, they, there wasn't really, they didn't deal with the Palestinians as a real partner. They stopped talking to them. They cut off aid. Uh, the is, Palestinians refused to talk to the White House also. They cut well, off going office. back to November of 2017, that's because Trump administration closed the PLO office here in Washington. And that's what started this. But, you know, there is, they didn't handle this uh, the way the last administration did, uh, frankly. But that, that administration, despite John Kerry's efforts, uh, wasn't able to bring it about easier either. It's not easy. But going back to your concern about annexation, you were right because annexation would have, what was the biggest issue with it? It would have perhaps permanently impeded prospects for two states. And there's a reason that that was taken off the table by Netanyahu as a part of this UAE deal. That's because it wasn't in Israel's interest. He wouldn't have taken it off the table if he really thought it was in Israel's interest. Yet, let's not forget that it was the Trump administration that gave the green light for annexation in its so-called peace agreement earlier this year. Again, demonstrating that its policy towards Israel has been fundamentally flawed. They didn't give a green light for annexation carte blanche. They gave a green light to talk about, and it was never clear from Netanyahu or from the Trump administration, those areas that will most realistically be a part of Israel, even during a two-state solution, that you can already extend sovereignty or annex those territories. Um, but he didn't go through with it. Um, and I because think, it wasn't uh, in Israel's interest. I, I, I think I agree with you on that point. Um, I think I agree with you on that point. But I, there's a deeper point that, that we're trying to get to, and maybe this will be like the last kind of thing we can... The we can last talk. of the last, the real last. Okay. The last of the last, the last of the last, just to make it interesting, <laughs> is that there's a, there's a sense here that among... The American Jewish community, again, who's primarily Democrat and the Democrats, that there is a conditional love of Israel. There's um, there's a conditional – and again, we're not reflecting necessarily our views. We're trying to reflect what most Israelis are thinking and, and including those few hundred thousand of, of American voters who live here. Um, there's a sense that if you don't accept our vision of what your two-state solution should look like, we're going to – be more and more distanced from you, and and Israelis look at the Republican Party for and, and and you know Trump is symbolizing that now, but it it could be someone else soon, uh, whether now or in four years, and saying they're not conditioning their love and support for us here, and so you see this kind of trend over here in Israel where people are saying well, they like us and they keep you know tough love you know they're giving us tough love they're saying you need to go towards a two state solution this is what's good for you and the Israeli voter says who are you to tell us what's good for us. Maybe we know what's good for us. Um, and, and of course, you know, you're familiar with this, you know, country. I'm sure you follow the politics and the press here. And we have a very boisterous uh, debate in the press and in politics all the time about what is good for us, right? You have two Jews and they're going to build three synagogues and, you know, uh, there's, there's always a cacophony of voices here. But that that's kind of that sense that we're not getting that from the Republican side and we are getting that uh, from the Democrat side. And towards the end of the Obama administration, and with, you know, a lot of people here are very hurt. They felt it kind of like a stab in the back that the vote at the UN 
um, or, or the the unwillingness to be them, right? The abstention and that last vote at the at the UN was really hurtful, um, and that's kind of you know who are you to tell us what's in our best interest type thing. Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that or, or, or give a message to uh, Israelis um, on that sense, if, if you're welcome to. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll start by saying that the first time I went to Israel was in 1994. Um, uh, and I returned in 99 to study at Tel Aviv University. And I returned in 2000 to intern at the U.S. Embassy at the time in Tel Aviv. Uh, I saw a very different Israel uh, at that time. Uh, the 99 elections, which I was there for, the one election Netanyahu ever lost uh, when Barack won, was it was a very different time in Israel. Uh, and I'm and I'm grateful that I I had those experiences kind of shape my view of the U.S.-Israel relationship because my view of the U.S.-Israel relationship spans uh, and of course I've read my you know the the, the 70 plus decades. It's not defined by any two leaders. It's not defined um, by any policies. It's, it's about the enduring ties between our two countries and two peoples. And my one of my big concerns, and I switched to a group of students last night, is that they see it very much through the lens of Netanyahu and Trump, because, you know, especially Netanyahu has been around a long time. Uh, and, and I do think that under Donald Trump, he's so politicized this relationship that he has essentially said... If you don't view Israel the way I view Israel or the way I define my policy with regard to Israel, you, even Jews, are disloyal to Israel. That's deeply offensive. It's deeply offensive. He just told 75% of the Jewish community here in the United States that we're disloyal to Israel. And as I said at the beginning, based on polling, we know that's not true. We, we Jews care deeply about Israel. We have these ties to, to the country. We care about our Israel's security. And that's why a majority of us also support a two-state solution. But no one's trying to impose anything on, on Israel. Um, you know, if anything, it's, it's been Donald Trump who has so narrowly defined uh, the way this relationship should be and has so politicized it, I think, in a way that's, that's um, frankly, uh, been, been potentially very dangerous. Um, and, you know, for these reasons and more, I keep saying this, I think that's why we Jews here in the United States and those, frankly, even in Israel, are going to support Joe Biden. Um, and this, let's not underestimate the importance of this election. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it sounds like hyperbole, but it's actually true. This election really is going to determine our future. And it's going to have an impact on Israel as well. Oh, we and definitely I- agree with that. Yeah. 100, 100%. And, and, I, and I just want to conclude by saying. But before you conclude, I, I, I conclude. I, no, an important point, uh, an important point and overall point is that, and, and we've made this because within the Israeli debate, you hear this within the American debate, within the Jewish debates, is that you're only pro-Israel, or you can replace the word America, if you support Israel the way I support Israel. And you hear that here in Hebrew a lot, right? Um, coming from uh, from at, at this moment you hear it from certain parts of the right wing saying you're, you're not pro-israel if um and, and you hear that about american candidates or politicians saying they're not pro-israel they're not pro-israel enough they're anti-israel and i say if somebody supports israel's right to exist in peace and security let's just stop there they're pro-israel right 
and then we'll talk about the details. And you've and you've and you've taken much flack from like right wingers here in Israel about and, and about I, you know is Bernie Sanders pro Israel? There's this and that. Israel was like, yes, they are, and 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 that was the reason why. And and, 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 and I'll say it every true. time. I don't I don't have to agree with anything else they say, and I'm not going to vote for them. But if somebody supports Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, we'll talk about the details later. Let's agree and shake hands that they're pro-Israel and let's move on from there. And let's not set the bar too high of, of who is pro-Israel because then we're just losing friends and making enemies that way. And Correct. I think it's, it's unnecessary. Um, and, I, and I was just going to you know, reflect on what you were saying and say, absolutely, this election in the United States is absolutely the most uh, important election in, in my lifetime, yeah. in your lifetime, in Dan's lifetime, maybe in our parents' lifetimes, uh, you know, Definitely, Lots uh, and, and I hope it in, in going forward that future elections, as important as they may, won't be as polarized, and that we won't be in these sorts of moments. I am very, very disturbed uh, from abroad as to what's going on, and I pray that the election is peaceful, and that whoever uh, uh, wins or loses, that there aren't repercussions um, that are, uh, you know, civil unrest and violence. Um, and 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 it's very clear to me that that at this juncture could be. Uh, uh, a real situation. So I hope that that doesn't happen. I want to thank you very much for your time, um, for, for speaking to us. Um, it's very, very clear that uh, your organization and you are very passionate about, uh, about Israel, about the Jewish community, about Jewish issues, and about, and about the politics of the Jewish community, and wanting to see a better and more secure way forward than uh, what we've experienced in the past four years. Um, I, I think that that's something that uh, we as well, uh, with family in the States, you know, even though we're here in Israel and this is you know, our choice, we still have family in the States, uh, very close family in the States, and we are concerned. So we, we, we hope that everything goes, goes very well. Um, and, and we appreciate you giving us 20 extra minutes of your time than you originally promised. Uh, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. You know, I, I realized I didn't, I didn't address one thing. <laughs> This is on me. The legacy of the Obama administration. You know, I, I've been I've been there and seen the Iron Dome being deployed. I know how critical it is to your security. I would say that I would say that's the legacy of the Obama administration. That and the arrow and everything that Israel is able to do to ensure its right to self defense. That thirty eight billion dollars over 10 years, and there's a reason it was 10 years, because it was going to outlast even the next administration. That's Obama and, and Biden's legacy when it comes to Israel. And that is much more important, I would say, than even some of these symbolic gestures that we've seen in the past three years, because that is what saves lives. And so, you know, for those who who don't know, where Joe Biden stands on Israel, I, I would I would encourage them to consider the Iron Dome and consider the assistance and uh, both their values, because that's where there's the biggest distinction when it comes to these two candidates running. Fantastic. And yes, we, uh, yeah, we, we, time, we really are going to have a big election here. So absolutely. What, what time is the debate, the VP debate? I think it's in, at in nine. I think it's at nine. nine. Of the night here, so it's going to be like five a.m. here yeah. for me. Yeah, I'll be awake. My kids are going to definitely be awake at five a.m. It'll be worth watching. She's going to crush him. 
Yeah, I, you know, I sat, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this, I, I sat behind her quite often at these hearings and, you know, never envied those witnesses. And She's so. definitely an impressive debater. I, I got to say, I was very impressed with her in the, uh, in the primaries. In uh, whatever you do, we wish you a lot of luck. Thank you. Uh, and uh, after the elections, if you want to come back on our show, we would be very glad to have you. Happy to. And All right. uh, take care. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you. Best. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced. <laughs>